Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. This is probably the second most exciting moment of my life here at the Mount up front. (laughs) Second most. First being over 11 years ago when Brooke and I got married here, it looked very different. Uh, If you happen to have been around then, you might remember maybe I think there was dark green carpet, different lighting, or just it was just very different. It's beautiful now, and I loved it then for sure. Um, I don't know. I'm just talking to make myself not nervous now. Before I dig myself into a ditch, I'm just going to move on. I love being here. I love worshiping with you guys. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Tyler Miller, and I um, am very excited to open God's Word with you to share with you some thoughts on God's heart for the nations and how you can be a part of it as a church. Um, you may know my, my in-laws, Jan and John, they're great. Um, we're uh, just so glad to continue to see how God is growing your church from a distance. We live in Charlotte, and we hear regular reports of what God's doing here. So, um, where am I going with this? Uh, I'm going to Acts chapter 1. So, uh, our passage this morning is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So if you have a Bible, you can, or I guess it's on the screen, maybe behind me, yeah, look at that, that's cool. Uh, we'll read that together. This is God's word for you today. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you came. Thank you that you lived a perfect life, a life that we could never live. Thank you that your death on the cross purchased our pardon, freed us from the guilt of sin, from the shame of sin, from the power of sin. It purchased new life for us so that if we trust in you, we would be forgiven, we would be redeemed, we would be brought into your family and brought into your mission brought into your great eternal plan from the beginning of time to proclaim, to be witnesses of the resurrected and ascended Jesus who is returning. Pray that as we read and study and think about this passage that your Holy Spirit would speak. Lord, speak through my weakness, speak through my words, speak through me so that you would be clear on on, on display. And I pray for the mount. Would you bless them? Would you cause your face to shine upon them, that your ways may be known on the earth? Let the peoples praise you, O God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God is at work. He's at work beyond human understanding, beyond the limits of our hope, 
beyond the borders of our imagination, God is at work. He's working through all kinds of peoples, all different skin tones, all different dialects, languages, ethnicities. In fact, the statistical center of Christianity was in Timbuktu as of 2004. If you don't know where that is, it's in Africa. But this means that Timbuktu at one point was the center, statistically the center of the Christian world, and that each, in each direction there was the highest density of professing Christians. And while it's been said that the most important things about Christianity can't be measured, and I believe that to be true, I do think statistics can kind of show us what God seems to be doing in general around the world. So, here are a few. As of 20 years ago, it was estimated that about 12 to 15% of the world's missionaries were from the Western Hemisphere. So does that mean that we're not sending enough missionaries? That we need to send more? Maybe. But I would argue this trend is actually telling us something maybe a little different. It's showing us how the gospel is moving around the world. And the front wave of the church is actually past the West. It began in Jerusalem moved out to the neighboring regions of Judea, Samaria, and has truly reached the ends of the earth. And yet, there are still so many pockets of the world that are unreached with the gospel. I read a statistic that for every 30 missionaries sent to a part of the world which is, con- which is not considered unreached, one is sent to a part of the world that is considered unreached. According to a website called joshuaproject.net, There are over 17,000 identifiable, unique people groups in the world, with over 7,000 of them being unreached. Meaning, roughly 40% of the world's people groups are unreached. Let's put that into perspective of population. Think about the world's population of about 8 billion people or so. This means 3 and a quarter billion people are unreached, which is about 40% of the world. Joshua Project says that 97%, I'm sorry, 97 of those people groups in the world who are unreached are actually here in the U.S. They're not native to the U.S., but they're immigrants. Also, 250 of the world's unreached people groups make up, get this, one-third of the world's population. 250 unreached people groups make up 2.4 billion people. What's more, 269 of the 545 people groups in China, as an example, do not even have portions of the Bible available in their primary language. Globally, 2,138 people groups in the world do not have scripture portions or audio recordings of the Bible in their primary language. This means roughly 165 million people are without access to at least some portion of God's word, whether written or spoken. Just to make sure that we're not without hope from all these numbers, as of 2010, it was reported that the country with the highest growth of evangelical Christianity was Iran. 19.6% annual growth. Now, we don't want to get too caught up in numbers, but What I want us to see in all of this is that there's a huge need for laborers in the world. 97 uh, 97 unreached people groups have immigrated to the U.S., like I said a minute ago. Compare that to India. There are roughly 2,300 people groups within India, with 2,100 of them being unreached. In light of this, Jesus' words in Luke 10, 2, become much more powerful. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Y'all, suffice it to say that the gospel has spread to the ends of the earth, but not every end. There are millions of people who have no access to a missionary, no access to a Christian from their own people from which they could hear the gospel. Brooke and I have had the joy of working for an organization focused on sharing the gospel around the world. We spent most of our time doing evangelism and discipleship with college students. We love reaching this generation because they are going to the world. And since 2008, when we met, we've sent students to East Asia, Dominican Republic, 
various countries in the Middle East, Ireland, Sweden, South Asia, Thailand. We ourselves have been particularly focused on taking students with us to East Asia a number of times. And as you might know, Brooke lived there as a missionary for two years before we met. We love what we get to do because we get to see God at work around the world firsthand. We've watched people come to faith. People from these countries come to faith in Christ and begin to walk with him and be used by God. We've seen them become missionaries, taking the gospel to parts of the world that we don't have easy access to. Rather than strategizing how the Great Commission can can be completed, rather than just talking about statistics and numbers, which we have done and can be helpful, I really want us to take a look at one of the most pivotal texts for missions in all of the Bible, Acts chapter 1. We see how the church started on its global mission here, and I want to talk about how this impacts us today. In this passage, we'll see that missions is empowered by the Spirit with the purpose of proclaiming the gospel to the nations pushed forward by Christ. This is the big idea that I think God wants to teach us from this passage. Let me repeat that again. Missions is empowered by the Spirit with the purpose of proclaiming the gospel to the nations, pushed forward by the Spirit. So we have in our outline a surprising promise, a surpassing purpose, and a simple push. So, before we get to the surprising promise, look in the first three verses of Acts chapter 1 to get some background. The book of Acts is a history of the church. It's focused on the work of Jesus in and through the church. And the title might might actually be a little misleading, The Acts of the Apostles, as it's often titled, at least it is in my ESV, is not necessarily accurate because Acts is actually focused on the work of Jesus continuing his ministry through the church, through the apostles, for sure, through believers, for sure. But it's Jesus at work in the power of the Holy Spirit through the church. That is what we see in the book of Acts. In his gospel, which Luke wrote, before he wrote Acts, so he wrote his gospel and he wrote Acts, he spoke of God's promises fulfilled in Christ, showing that Jesus was not a standalone historical character, but rather he's the promised Messiah, the Savior who was promised by God to defeat Satan and restore all things back to God, to restore all things back to what God created them for. He is also the Savior of both Jew and Gentile, meaning the whole world. In Acts chapter 1 dovetails with, Act, with, with Luke 24, picking up where it left off. You can even compare the two chapters. They kind of basically recount the same event, and Acts carries it on and takes it further. So, here in this passage, we see that Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection teaching the disciples, even eating with them. We see that in Luke 24. But why did he do this? Some commentators say that the number 40 reflects the common theme of preparation in the Bible. Two major examples being how Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai in preparation for receiving the law from God, and Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness in preparation for his earthly ministry. So this stretch of 40 days in Acts seems to reflect this theme of preparation. What did, he, what did he do during those 40 days? What did they talk about? Well, Acts 1-3 tells us he spoke to them about two main things. First, he gave them proofs to show them he was alive. Second, he taught them about the kingdom of God. Basically, he was expounding upon everything he had taught prior, kind of recapping and giving them what they needed to continue their mission forward. Can you imagine, though, how the disciples must have felt at this time? Just, if you could, think. Before he died, Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of God, performing miracles, caring for the disciples, caring for the lost, opening the eyes of the blind physically and spiritually. And he was also opening the eyes of his disciples, showing them who he was. They got glimpses of who he was. They seemed to kind of get who he was, but they didn't always get it right. And in a plot twist none of them expected, he was taken up from them and killed on the cross. 
They expected the Messiah to come with military power, establishing an immediate kingdom. He, they expected him to restore Israel back to political, geographic prominence. They expected him to be a different kind of Messiah. And there he hung on the cross, dying like a criminal under the military power of Rome. Surely doubts filled their mind. Surely they were scared. Surely anxiety crept in as they, they wondered what would happen next. This man they had followed was killed and taken up from them, and they didn't know what would happen from there on out. Even the apostles who witnessed Jesus' life and resurrected body had doubts. And even though the answer to their fears was right in front of them, they were perplexed. On this side of things, where we stand, we know the end of the story. We have more information than they did. They didn't know that. They didn't know how it would end. They were afraid for their lives and unsure of what they would do next. Even the people who witnessed Jesus' miracles needed a miracle for Jesus of Jesus to open their eyes. Even the people who witnessed the miracles of Jesus needed a miracle to see who Jesus really was. To put it another way, you and I need more than intellectual knowledge about Jesus to actually know him. It's not just enough to know about Jesus. Jesus is concerned about our hearts, that we would know him and the power of his resurrection. We need spiritual eyes to see him, ears to hear him, and hearts that can respond to who he is. So, what has God revealed? What is it that God wants to teach you and I through the first verses of Acts? And what does this tell us about global missions? Well, let's follow along with their, this perplexed band of bumbling disciples as they discover the answers to these questions themselves. Starting with verses 4 and 5, we have the first point, the, surpri the surprising promise. So to recap what's going on here, Jesus was staying with his disciples. He gave them an order. Stay where you are. Stay in Jerusalem. And wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. This promise was foretold by John the Baptist, and it was this. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So wait. The disciples were surprised because this did not make sense to them. Why would they need to wait? And what's up with this promised Holy Spirit? Isn't it better that Jesus stayed with them? This moment in history was unique. It set in motion exactly what the church needed to thrive and grow and begin their mission. They just had no idea. To get what they needed, they had to sit tight and wait on God's promise. Their waiting was not in vain because soon they would receive the promised Holy Spirit. We see in verse 5 that John the Baptist prepared the way for the coming of the Holy Spirit. His baptism of water showed people of their need for spiritual cleansing, and it prepared the disciples for the baptism of the Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It was a foretelling of what was to come. But what was this promised Spirit coming to do? The Spirit was a gift from the risen Lord. The Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son to the church given to the disciples at Pentecost first to strengthen them with power, to guide them with truth and conviction, and to point their hearts back to Jesus. That's why the Spirit came. You see, the Spirit prepares us and makes us long for the coming kingdom of God. He prepares us to be witnesses of Jesus and his coming kingdom. Jesus spoke extensively of his kingdom with his disciples before leaving, as we see in Acts chapter 1 here. So therefore, the disciples' waiting was not in vain, because at the end of their waiting came the best thing that could have ever happened to them. In John 16, 7, Jesus spoke about this, and he said that it would be to their advantage that he would leave them. Because in leaving them and sending the Spirit, the Spirit would reveal everything they needed to know to complete their mission. The Spirit would give them confidence and joy in their mission. And He would give them power to perform their mission. 
giving them different gifts, collecting them into a body of Christ to, to do what God has called them to do. This gift of the Spirit was surprising because the disciples at the time did not understand what Jesus was doing and why he had to leave them. And so, like the first disciples, we need the promised Holy Spirit to guide us in the surpassing purpose he's given the church. We see this in verses 6 through 8. And here we get a snapshot into one of the conversations they had with Jesus during his 40-day post-resurrection, pre-ascension hangout time. He's hanging out with them for 40 days. We don't think it was just 40 days straight of just lectures, right? He was, maybe there was moments in and out of those conversations. But here, Luke zooms in on a particular conversation. Why? It's important. This is probably one of the most important conversations that Jesus had with his disciples. Just inferring that from the fact that Luke points this one conversation out when there was probably many. They basically ask him, so, is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time when we're going to return to political and geographic prominence and power? Is now the time when we're going to finally come out from the thumb of Rome and be a people worth reckoning? Is now the time? Jesus does not respond directly to that question, if you notice. Instead, he entirely redirects them and repurposes what really matters. He says, the kingdom of God is coming. You're not wrong for thinking that. But just you wait. In the meantime, I have a mission for you. His response to their question tells us that God has a surpassing purpose for the church. And his timing is surpassing what they could ever expect. It surpasses misconceptions. It gives us something greater than we could have ever come up with on our own. It surpasses politics. It surpasses worldly power. It surpasses personal agendas. It gives us the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and making him known to the nations. While we might see this clearly on this side of history, the disciples expected an immediate political kingdom they thought the Messiah would bring in a swift and final reversal of all things that were sad. And while Jesus doesn't dismiss the fact that that will happen, he says, that is coming, but in the meantime, you'll be my witnesses. They're not wrong in their expectation. They're wrong in their understanding and application of when and how that would happen. Yes, the kingdom is coming. Yes, the people of God will be vindicated. Yes, the powers of this world would be overthrown, but no, not yet, at least not fully right now. This is what some people so wonderfully call the idea of now, but not yet. It's like getting engaged. You're promised to be married, but it hasn't happened yet. So too, the kingdom of God is promised to come. It is coming, but not yet. It is breaking in. And God is using the church as his witnesses, to proclaim this kingdom that is breaking in, that is coming. So, we see here that the gospel has always had a global scope, and it comes in God's timing. So, while we ourselves don't build the kingdom, I don't, go, I don't build the kingdom. You don't build the kingdom, in, in some sense. We are engaged in kingdom work. Let me clarify what I mean by that. This is, this is an important distinction to make. And this comes from a few places. One of the ideas here is that we're called witnesses in verse 8. This word means that we'll testify, we'll speak of what we know to be true. Jesus is the king. He lived and died to save sinners from death. And that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. So that all who call on him in faith we'll find forgiveness. And the power given to us, the Holy Spirit, will be the means by which this work is accomplished as we proclaim what God has done, as we proclaim what God has already spoken in his word. It says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. We are witnesses, speaking not our own words, 
but speaking the words that God has given us in the Scriptures. Jesus did this, in fact. In Luke 24 and in Acts 1, it says he used the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, basically, as we would call it, the Old Testament, the majority of your Bible, the first part. He used all of that to basically say, here's who I am. All of this points to me, he said. All of this points to me. He gave testimony about himself using the Scriptures. Very powerful. So, as those who are called to testify and witness to Christ, we speak about what God has revealed in His Word. We speak about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4-5 says, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Then he goes on to say, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness in the beginning, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is what we proclaim. That is what we are witnesses to. We are witnesses to the word that in the beginning spoke life into all things. We're witnesses to the word that became flesh, Jesus Christ, who lived and died for us. We are witnesses to his kingdom and his work. So we don't build the kingdom. He builds the kingdom and he uses us. And that is astounding. Because if you're like me, and you got some junk, and you're broken, and you're not perfect, and you make mistakes every day, and you have to apologize to your kids and your wife and your friends, and you, you get what I'm saying. If you're like me, you realize God could use me, a broken vessel. Yeah, he can use you. He can use anyone. He doesn't just forget the things that are broken in you. He makes you beautiful. He gives you his spirit. He gives you his spirit to do many things, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but he makes you beautiful and useful for his service and for his ministry. So we don't build the kingdom. He builds the kingdom through us, through the church, in the power of the spirit. I think that's important to recognize because it gives us the right perspective of what it means to be a witness. We can't claim any kind of uh, you know, we, we, we can't say, I did this, I did this. No, God did this. God is at work. God is the one redeeming and calling people to himself through the words we speak. But not only do we get to speak the words of the gospel, we get to do it around the world. It's kind of cool. I'm not going to lie. One of my favorite parts about traveling around the world is this. Good food. Everybody loves meat on a stick, right? Unless you're a vegetarian, sorry. But each time I've gone to East Asia, I usually at some point end up eating meat on a stick, and it usually involves going out late at night on the markets on the street, and it's dimly lit, and most of the time you're like, how can you even see what you're cooking? You don't even know if it's cooked all the way because it's so dark out here, but it's delicious, yummy, salty, fatty meat on a stick, or maybe some pita bread on the side. Anyway, whew, it's good. That's not why we go on missions. So why am I interjecting this comment right before lunch? Sorry. Because I think it actually reflects God's heart for the nations in some kind of way. How? Follow this line of thinking. Maybe it makes sense. Because as we interact with and experience the cultures of the world, we get to see God's heart for the nations in a unique and powerful way. And just as he made each tribe and tongue and nation in his image, he gave them unique and creative characteristics which sometimes really comes out in their food. I think food is a universal love language. We all, you could not speak the same language as someone else, but you could sit down around a good meal, and it's almost like just they're going, mm, mm. You understand each other. You, I, you know what that's like. But what, can you imagine what it'll be like in heaven to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, as it says in Revelation, where you're eating food with people from around the world? And I'm not sure what that's going to look like exactly. I'm not sure what the language we're all going to speak. How's, I don't know. We're going to be there, though. In Christ, we'll be there. And I hope that they get to cook their food for us because, frankly, their food is so much better. It's going to be awesome. It doesn't, but the details don't matter. The point is, Jesus calls his disciples to tell others about him and not just in their own hometown. He calls them to go to the nations. 
He doesn't just say, go to your neighborhoods. No, you should. I heard last week you heard a great sermon on reaching your neighbors. My encouragement is start there. If you're not sure where to start, start there. Start with your neighbors. Love your neighbors. Invite them into your lives. Pray for them. Initiate conversations with them. Listen to them. Watch how they live their lives. Find ways to talk about how Jesus meets them where they are. But Jesus doesn't just say, go to your backyard. Do that. Because he does say, go there. But he says, go to those who you have tension with. That's the implication of these ever-expanding circles that he gives them. From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. He says, go to people that you normally might have tension with. Lean into that. Love them. Listen to them. Move towards them. And then he says, go to people who live across geographic boundaries. Get a passport. Jesus is basically saying, you need a passport. This was monumental for the disciples. It completely reframed their expectations of what Jesus wanted for them. They had a very narrow geopolitical scope and frame of reference for the kingdom of God. They thought, surely God will restore the kingdom of Israel at this time. Jesus, is that when it's going to happen? Is that now? Just wait. That timing is not for you to know. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He redirects them to a surpassing purpose. Practically. This means that global missions is not the work of individuals laboring overseas, but it's the work of the entire church from start to finish. He didn't just give this charge to a few select people. In some sense, he did. Yes, you might say, well, he gave it to them. Yes, he gave it to them, but he gave it to them because they were the foundation of the church. And upon the foundation of the church, with Christ as the cornerstone, you have the apostles, and that we are built upon that. So by extension, his giving this charge to them means it is given to you, to us, as is the church. And we think of the church globally, sure, but Jesus and the apostles, when, they got, when, when the apostles began to gather, they organized themselves locally. The church, the local church, is what Jesus gave to further the kingdom of God. So, let me get back on point here. What does this mean for you in the church today? It means that every gift is needed. The gifts that you bring are needed. The gifts that you may not even think you have are needed. Every member is important. We do need missionaries. We need some of you to get up and go, to get a passport and go overseas. But all of us, are involved in this work. Missionaries are not just the best of the best. They're not just these free agents who get to gallivant around the world and tell people about Jesus. They're sent from their church, and they're supported and basically propelled forward, yes, in the power of the Holy Spirit, but guess what? He uses you, he uses your church to do that. I've told you about a few little snapshots of things that Brooke and I have gotten to do around the world. Guess what? The Mount has supported us in that financially and in prayer. So you have been a part of those things. So when we go, you have been there. And you get to rejoice in the work that God has done. So you serve on the sound team. You serve in nursery. You pray before the service. You distribute food and clothes to the community. You lead a Bible study or just participate in one. Or maybe life is crazy and you're just like, all I can do is show up on Sunday for worship. I got nothing else. Guess what? You're a part of this church. You're a part of God's mission. It doesn't matter how big or little you think your contribution is. That's why it's imperative and crucial. We live lives together. We worship on Sunday to do something unique that we can only do together as we gather corporately to worship the risen king. We go out into our, our lives throughout the rest of the week and we live together. We intersect our, the paths of other people for the glory of God. So, yes, give special emphasis to missions. Call people to go overseas. But consider how all of us play a role in sending laborers. So, what is it that keeps us motivated? How do we continue to do this work? 
What makes us so sure that all this money and time is worth it? We see the answers in verses 9 through 11 as the disciples are given a simple push toward their mission. In this scene, the disciples need a few angels to get their attention, to wake them up, and get them moving. All we know from Luke's account is that Jesus meets with them, answers their questions by reframing their understanding, and then he starts to rise up into the clouds. He's just taken away, and they're, they're like, what, uh, what, okay, where are you going? Like, can you imagine what that must have felt like? They didn't expect that. And there he goes, rising up into the clouds. And these angels see these guys standing there. And they give them a simple push in verse 11. They're basically like, oh, hey, fellas, what's up? Uh, you know he's coming back the same way he came, right? So get, get moving. you got some work to do. Uh, that's my translation. And there are commentators who would more or less agree with that. But that's, the thing is, these guys were perplexed. And they just needed a simple little push to get them going. So before they could move out to the nations, they had to wait upon the promised spirit, which we saw. The the spirit comes in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and he comes on the church in power. And from that moment on, everyone who trusts in Jesus by faith receives the Holy Spirit. The pouring out of the spirit is both a practical help for us and a fulfillment of promises in Scripture. Passages such as Joel 2.28, Isaiah 32.15, Isaiah 44.3, Joel 2.32, and others, for the sake of time I won't read them, speak about the promised Holy Spirit that is to come, prophesying it hundreds of years before it came as a promise. So, the point made to these disciples is the same point made to us today. Don't just stand there. Do something. Go. Because... God is at work to fulfill what he has already promised. We can have confidence in our mission because God is at work to fulfill what he has already promised. The eternal, I'm sorry, the entirety of the Bible gives us this confidence. It maps out the whole story. The eternal plan of God to bring redemption to all of the world is started in the beginning. And then, the earthly life and ministry of Jesus builds our confidence in this as we see him and witness his miracles and his power. And then the ascension of Christ here in Acts chapter 1 gives us the capstone of our confidence because he's coming back the same way he came. John wrote this beautifully in his first letter. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Meaning, one day, we will see him as he is and we will be like him, glorified and perfected in a resurrected body. We will become like him, free from the effects of sin, free from the shame that we feel in our feeble frame, free from the power of mortal judgment, and free to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Beyond this future reality, the resurrection gives us, I'm sorry, the ascension, resurrection and the ascension, both give us a very present hope and assurance of salvation. Because Jesus ascended, we now have him as our advocate. Think of it like this. Because he's ascended, this is why it's to your advantage, at least in some part. He's ascended and he's standing at the right hand of God, of God the Father and he's saying, forgive him. Forgive her. He is someone who I died for. She is someone for whom I gave my life. They belong to me. So because he's ascended, we now have the surprising power of the Holy Spirit to make possible our surpassing purpose of global missions and the assurance of our salvation because Jesus stands making intercession for us on our behalf. So how does the rubber meet the road with all of this? Simply put, Because Jesus is returning in the same way that he he left, we can have the utmost confidence in the mission of the church, which is, after all, the mission of Jesus. So even in the hardest circumstances, whatever those may be, we can have confidence to go forth and be a witness for Christ to the nations. This kind of hope really hit home for Brooke and I the last time that we were in East Asia. We had to take extra security one week because... uh, well, it's a long story, but they asked us to refrain from doing evangelism for a week, to lay really low. 
there was a lot of political pressure, and it was uh, it would endanger the the long term uh, missionaries that were there. So we, we we had to sit tight for about a week. So we did some other things instead of that. We spent time with Christian students to hear their stories of how they came to faith in Christ and how they were ministering to their peers and sharing the gospel on their campus where they were, despite the pressure from the government, despite uh, pressure from their parents even. And we got to have fellowship with them, to study the Bible and pray with them. We got to hear them pray and read the Bible in their own tongue, and it was powerful. It was a glimpse of eternity, a glimpse of heaven in some sense. It was beautiful. None of that time was wasted that week. We didn't get to do evangelism that week, but it fueled us and motivated us to continue on. After that week, it strengthened us and prepared us for what was ahead. The ascended Jesus is alive and well. He's sovereign over all things, and he's coming back the same way that he came, and that gives us confidence in our mission. And so we see in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is preparing and sending the church into a global mission. The heart of this mission is not strategy or statistics. They can be helpful. The heart of missions is as deep and wide as the heart of God. I wish I could begin describing it to you, but the heart of missions is, is the love of God poured out to the ends of the earth through his Holy Spirit. It's the glory of God put on display for all the nations to see. It's the passion of Jesus made known among all peoples. It's the name of God worshipped in many tongues. It's the gathering in of the church from all the corners of the world. And God's work of bringing his eternal kingdom through the Holy Spirit-fueled church. At the very heart of missions, we see the very heart of God for all peoples. And the heart of God is one that cares both for the lost and the missionary. God doesn't just care about those who are unreached. He does care about you. He cares about his people. And as I talked with our friends who have served in East Asia for over a decade, recently had some conversations with them, they talk about their heart to reach the unreached, and they've, they've gone through some hard times recently. And as you may know, some people have Missionaries have been sent home to their home countries. They've been kicked out of their countries because of COVID. Um, And currently, we have some friends that are unable to return to the country they were laboring in for over 10 years because of COVID. So, uh, in some sense, we really should mourn and mourn with them over the loss of of their ministry in this country. They they feel heartbroken. The people they love, they've been pulled away from unexpectedly. Uh, There's lots of things in play here, but we we can mourn with them. their hearts are broken, and, uh, and, and we know that God cares for them. So, um, sorry, got lost in my notes here. Um, okay, this is where I was going with that. Even though their hearts are broken, even though they've been pulled out of this country they love, God is not surprised by COVID. He's not surprised by border closings. He's not surprised by the bad kings, as my kids call them, uh, being yeah, well, I'll explain that later, but yeah. Uh, bad governments, bad, bad rulers in the world that would try to suppress the church. Um, he's not surprised by them. He's not, he's not thwarted by them. He's coming back the same way he came. And so, come what may, come pandemic or, or political pressure, the church cannot be defeated, and the gates of hell cannot stop the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel. And this is why our friends who have been kicked out of this country because of COVID have decided that they're going to move to the Middle East. Instead of returning to the country that they would like to go to, they can't, they're going to go elsewhere. They're going to go to the Middle East to continue their calling as missionaries. But what would motivate them to take their two young kids to a whole new country? They don't know the language, they don't know the customs, and who knows what they'll face there. What would motivate them to do this? Let's revisit the main idea of this sermon. Missions is empowered by the Spirit with the purpose of proclaiming the gospel to the nations, pushed forward by Christ. The Holy Spirit's placed a calling on their lives to proclaim the gospel among the unreached, and they are pushed forward by the promise of Christ's return. With all of this in mind, I want you to think about what this means for you. For my unbelieving friends, those of you who don't know what you believe about Christ, or maybe you do know what you believe and you don't believe that he is the king, the messiah, 
Think about the fact that for all of history, there has not been a single earthly king who has destroyed the people of God. Many have tried. The church has weathered the storms of lots of tyrants around the world. And the Bible has endured through countless attempts to erase it, to cancel it. But it hasn't happened. Either we are on to something, or somehow we've had a whole bunch of random luck which has managed to span time and politics and geography because each of us in Christ are telling the same story of God's free grace. Consider as well the countless Christian men and women who have died for their faith or suffered greatly because they had this assurance of salvation. They had this assurance that Jesus was coming back the same way he left. Their testimony speaks about a sovereign, eternal king who is returning. Either their suffering and death are in vain, or their testimony is true. But even beyond the chorus of saints who tell this testimony, the testimony of Jesus is what you really need to consider. Because if the testimonies of men and women are true, then how much more so would the testimony of God be true? Think about it. The validity of a testimony in a courtroom is based upon the character of the person. And Jesus' character is one where he simply cannot be just a good man. He must be either a lunatic for thinking he was God or a liar for giving us fake news, or he is who he says he is, one with the Father, the eternal Son of God, the Savior who promises eternal life to all who call on him in faith. If you're unsure of what you believe about Jesus, or if you are sure and you don't believe who he says he is, here's what I want you to do. Give it an honest look. Read the Bible. I want you to just encourage you to read 1 John. It's in the back. It's not the Gospel of John. It's towards the back. Read 1 John and just take note of how sure he is that you can know Jesus and you can know the salvation that he promises. Also, talk to someone in this church. Have honest conversation. Don't hold back. Lean into this. And consider that Jesus offers you salvation as a gift, even in your doubts. The disciples who saw his resurrected body had doubts. Even in your fear. The disciples were afraid. So come to him. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And you'll be sure to find forgiveness and new life. So for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to consider how the mission of the church applies to you today. From my experience, most of you will not serve overseas long-term as missionaries. Some of you will never maybe even leave this country. But some of you will hear God's call and respond to it to go overseas. You may go for a week. You may go for long-term. Wherever you go and however long you stay, it's a matter of calling. The question of whether you should go or not is a matter of God's calling for you. And often that calling can take unexpected turns. Put your yes on the table for God. Put it on the table. See what he does with it. Trust him where he may take you. We could tell you countless stories of friends, even our own stories, of where you put your yes on the table, you start in one direction, and God completely redirects you. God is at work in ways we don't understand. But put your yes on the table. So for those of you who may sense God's call to do this, to put your yes on the table, to say, God, I'll go where you want me to go, the best thing you can do, I think, is lean into your church. Talk to your pastors. Talk to older men and women here who can help you think through this together. Because remember, you're not just a free agent who gets to go out on their own and tell people about Jesus. You're sent from and in and through your church, which God has given you as, the, as a family to help you discern where is God calling you to go? What might he be calling you to do? There are going to be people who see blind spots in your life that you're not going to see. I won't tell you the whole story here for the sake of time, but I was planning to go to Sweden for a year on missions. I had not sought any counsel from my pastors on that, and I do think that was one of the reasons I ended up not going, because I did not see these blind spots. There's a lot more I could say about that, but suffice it to say, I've experienced when I've tried to make decisions on my own to go overseas, and it didn't work. Now, um, the point is, lean into the leadership that God has brought to your church. 
trust them, and walk with them through that process. So I want you all to hear the call to missions, to hear that you and your gifts can be used by God here locally and globally because his heart is for you and his heart is for the nations. So if you don't go, be a part of sending others. Be generous in financial gifts. Be generous in praying. Send and support people through that. No matter what part you play, your only hope in life and in death is that we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And if that hope is true, and I believe it is, then nothing can separate you from that hope. And no gift is unimportant. And you are a part of God's global mission as a part of the church. So this is your simple push. Go. Do something. Don't just stand there, Mount. This Jesus who was taken up into heaven will come back in the same way that he came. So go. Be witnesses to Jesus in every corner of the world. In your backyard. In your workplace. In your schools. Wherever God has put you, be a witness to him there. Go, because God is at work in and through you. Let's pray. Father, whom have we in heaven but you? Our heart and our flesh may fail, but you are our strength and our portion forever. There is nothing we desire besides you, Lord. We just lay down everything we have in front of you now even if we feel like it's not much, even if our time is limited because life is crazy, even if money is tight, even if we don't feel like we have enough knowledge, even if we don't feel like we have enough charisma or whatever we think we don't have, we lay everything before you because you are worthy of our worship and our praise and we have nothing apart from you, no ultimate good apart from you knowing us and loving us. So I pray that this church would know the love of Christ, that that they would know the power of the gospel in their own hearts, that they would know your heart for the nations, that they would go and be sent to do what you called them to do, to say what you called them to say, to be faithful where you have put them. Lord, there is no gift greater than another, but we love and serve you all the same, so I pray that these gifts from this church would be used in a powerful way for your name among the nations. In Jesus' name I pray. 